Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the sixth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us and we'll explore the future of money, the rise of Pentecostalism, the disappearance of the human mind, the challenges facing journalism in the 21st century, the limits of science, and the relationship between science and religion, as well as the question of where does all the money go? Complex societies are like bodies, and information is their blood. Constrict the flow of that information, whether through dictatorship or censorship or simply news monopoly, and the health of society and of the body politic will suffer. The antidote seems obvious. Democratise information. Let it flow from wherever to wherever. Remove the controls and constrictions and let a million flowers of knowledge bloom. But of course, it's not quite as simple as that. For the flow of information to be healthy, the information itself has to have at least some resemblance to the truth. And for it to be absorbed healthily, readers need to be willing to expend at least some effort and critical attention in understanding it. And by those measures, our society is not doing so well. Looked at this way, journalism is a bit like politics. As a rule, we say we don't really trust either profession, and neither seems to be in especially rude health at the moment. But at the end of the day, we definitely can't live without them. At least, not well. So what is the future for journalism? How can it survive in a jungle dominated by huge social media beasts and instant news? Is fake news simply the price we pay for the free flow of information? And above all, how might news journalism be made to serve the public good? Alan Rusbridger was editor of The Guardian from 1995 to 2015 and has thought, indeed been, through more of these debates on the future of journalism than almost anyone else today. His book, Breaking News, The Remaking of Journalism and Why It Matters Now, is part memoir and part analysis of the future and nature of journalism. And Alan joins us today. Alan, welcome to Reading Our Times. Very pleased to be here. You began your career in the mid-1970s, first working for the Cambridge Evening News. Talk us through the model for how journalism worked in those days, and in particular how it paid for itself. Okay, well, I was 23 at the time, 22, and so I didn't think about these things very deeply. But I think the local paper had a place in the community that was quite treasured. Your sources of news were the television or the radio or the local paper. Um, that was it. You know, there was no other way of finding out what was going on. And so it sold quite a lot of copies, something like 50,000 copies in Cambridge. The economic model also worked because we had advertising. Um, and if you wanted to buy or sell a house or a car, or if you wanted a job, you had to place an advert in the Cambridge Evening News. Uh, and so they were money-making machines mm -hmm. as well as being fundamental to the good of the community. So the combination of sales and adverts was enough to sustain a paper? Yeah. The cover price also helped. 
but it was really the, the small ads that paid our wages. Was there an arrogance to journalism back then? I asked because you say early on in the book, to be a journalist in those times was bliss. We felt a bit superior to those without the same access to information that we enjoyed. Well, I don't think that was so true of local newspapers. I think it was certainly true of the national press, mm -hmm. because you you were much less likely to meet your readers. I think there was a sense that we were on a platform above the audience. We had privilege access to information that they didn't. We had complete control of the means of distribution and information because they couldn't get it without us. They couldn't respond to us except by they could write us a letter. Mm. We had complete control over whether we printed the letter or not. Mm. So it was very easy to feel sort of slightly superior to, to the readership and that you were, well, as it were, handing down a, a daily tablet of stone to them. And did that breed a particular kind of Fleet Street culture? I think it did. And I also think it informed people's views of journalism. It, you know, if you were a journalist at that time, it was the natural order of things. Mm. You didn't question that anything would ever be different. And so when things began to change, it was a very severe threat, not only to the business model, but to also journalists' sense of themselves. Yes. Well, you joined The Guardian in 79, is that right? Yes. And you became editor in 95, but the book quickly spills on to the 1990s and, of course, the intrusion of the internet into this relatively settled model. I love the line you quote from Simon Jenkins, who says, the internet will strut an hour upon the stage and then take its place in the ranks of lesser media like CFAX. He wasn't right, was he? He wasn't right. <laughs> what was the perception of what was coming through the internet in the 90s? Well, until the early 90s, we had dumb terminals. You know, they, they couldn't communicate with the outside world. We could communicate around the office with them. But we had one terminal that communicated with the outside world. So there was no email. There was no sense of interaction with the outside world. And so for a while, there was a period when people could say, oh, I see, it's a distribution method. We could send The Guardian to the reader without having to print it. I mean, in 1994, with a colleague, I went to America because that was it was easier to look at the internet in America than <laughs> in the UK. And I remember going to the New York Times where they had a team of about five people and they were putting out a little arts and culture guide. And they said, we don't think this will ever work with news. So people had no idea what was about to hit them. Mm. And you've got people like Simon Jenkins saying, well, you know, this is a, a passing fad and this doesn't feel very important. Mm. And when I became editor in 1995, probably half the newspaper thought that. Because presumably there's also some professional superiority or at least anxiety there in the sense of I'm a professional journalist. I mean, you used the example several times in the book. You wouldn't want an amateur neuroscientist to operate on you, which is quite a telling comparison in lots of different ways. Old school print journalists are resistant for professional reasons as well, aren't they? So there were two ways of looking at it. One was that a newspaper was a broad and thin collection of stuff which once it was, on, it was on the internet you could do in any depth you liked so in a 24 page paper you might have one page on cricket and one page on the weather and another page on crime in the internet you could have 4,000 pages on crime yep. or 4,000 pages on you, you could go as deep as you wanted and then to counter that People said, no, the internet should be the place where you have sort of quick updates and then in, in print you do the depth. So we didn't understand 
how this medium was going to develop. But we went down the first route, so we made our first website. It was called Guardian Unlimited because, you know, we, we could do cricket unlimited, football unlimited. We could be unlimited in what we did. Mm. So that was the first stage. And then we get to the stage that I think you're referring to, which is when they started answering back. Yes. <laughs> and lots of journalists didn't like that. They didn't like having comments underneath their articles. Yeah. You know, who are these people? And they, they could start talking to each other. Yeah which we never gave them permission to do. And suddenly journalism felt very, very threatened. And you've got these ludicrous statements, you know, I'm a professional journalist. You wouldn't want a citizen brain surgeon operating on you as yeah. though they were the same thing. Yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing is that when you get over that anxiety and that antipathy, you make the point in the book and it can greatly improve journalism. You quote the example of the 2011 riots in um, London mm. and how it was the presence of quote-unquote citizen journalists reporting on the scene as buildings were burning that improved the accuracy of the journalists who were formally covering it. So it, it could work as a kind of a positive feedback loop, couldn't it? Completely. I mean, the first iPhone, I think, was 2007. So by 2011... Yeah, an awful lot of people were carrying cameras in their pockets and also the means to distribute the pictures. And this was another fork in the road because either you walled yourself off from this and said, well, what we do is immeasurably special. We're the professionals. Or you say, well, actually, this is incredible. There's an army of reporters and photographers out there. We want to knit what we do into that. So I call that open journalism. Mm. I said, we want to be open to it at a time when other people's were closing themselves off from it. And those 2011 riots, what we did then, which is more commonplace now, but we just thought, well, what you could do is just create a map of London. Mm. And every time we hear of an incident, once we verified it, we'll stick it on the map with pictures. And within hours, we were the go-to source. Yeah. Everyone had to come to The Guardian because we were open and we were practicing open journalism. And that became the definitive source for what was going on in London at the time. Yeah. There's a very critical phrase in what you just said there, which is once we've verified yeah. it, which is, of course, is the flip side of all this, isn't it? And democratization of information can be a very positive thing and it can broaden our understanding and certainly the granularity. But without checks and balances, you end up, well, we all know where we end up, you end up with fake news without deliberately misreporting. So how did you deal with that, particularly when this is emerging 10 years or so ago? Well, I think we thought that is what we can offer. So there, there will be a sea of stuff out there and some of it will be amazing and some of it won't be. And the role that we can bring to this is to filter it and to verify it and to say, look, you can trust this, you can't trust that this did happen, that didn't happen. But I think a lot of colleagues at the time just weren't prepared mentally to do that at all. They couldn't get over this idea that there were people out there writing and producing material that was in some ways, you almost have to whisper it, better. <laughs> it was better than what we were doing. Yeah. And there were bitter arguments within the paper. You know, the bloody editor doesn't believe in us. You know, he's not backing us. He's supporting all these morons out there on the web. Why isn't he supporting professional journalism? And, and it was a very subtle thing to try and get across. But I think one or two reporters did exceptional things. So there was a moment when there was a G20 meeting in London and the news vendor died. Police said he'd had a heart attack. 
and Paul Lewis, the reporter, thought, well, I, I wonder, did he have a heart attack? And he crowdsourced it. He yes. said to everybody, look, this guy died. Has anybody got pictures? And lots of reporters said, well, why are you doing that, Paul? That's your story. Why are you letting everybody know you're working on that story? But, of course, once again, he became the magnet. Once he put his flag up in the air and said, I'm interested in this story, everyone sent him the pictures. Somebody sent a bit of video that showed the guy being hit on the back of his head by a policeman. He'd been killed by the police. He hadn't had a heart attack. So if you're prepared to take that risk, as those journalists were, you get much better result at the end. But that then ties into this other issue, which runs all the way through the book, which is how do you pay for the stuff as yeah. well? Because there's going to be obviously a mentality that people say, well, I can get it from thousands of other citizen journalists. So why would I go to a Guardian journalist? And the struggle to work out how one can make this work financially, I mean, it runs like a spine through your book, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, the first thing was a very basic thing that I used to draw diagrams in endless meetings, which somebody gave the name the Rusbridger Cross to, so <laughs> as though this was a sort of scientific formula. But basically, it just showed print circulation wasn't going to go down, mm. and at some point there would be no Guardian because people would have stopped buying it, which is supposed to be actually run about now, and digital popularity would go up. And I said, we need to be on the digital popularity bit, otherwise there will be no Guardian. I can't promise you how we're going to pay for this, but if we don't do it, there will be no Guardian. So we jumped on the digital line, and then it was up to my commercial colleagues to try and work out how that was going to be paid for. And for a long time, we made losses. We started with a print audience of about 400,000. I managed to halve that because we were giving away the stuff for free. Mm. So that was not surprising. But what happened was that we found an infinitely bigger audience. So from 400,000, The Guardian is now 400 million. I mean, it, it's exponentially huge. And there's much more money to be made from 400 million people than there is from 400,000 people. Yes, but your argument throughout this is optimize your reach before you put up labels. Yeah. I mean, it, it was called Reach Before Revenue. Yeah. And in a way, Amazon was the most successful company. And yeah. Amazon now, giant company, but it was 25 years before it made a profit. Yeah. It will be one of the most profitable companies in the world because they just went for reach. And that's what we did. But you can only afford to do that, presumably, if you've got some external support, haven't you? And I'm struck by the influence and importance of the Scott Trust yeah. in keeping the Guardian going through this difficult time. Bluntly, could it have existed without Scott Trust? Well, the Scott Trust is is ours as Rupert Murdoch, as well. You know, so. <laughs> what um, a comparison. Well, I mean, the Times and the, the Murdoch companies were splashing out hundreds of millions. Remember, Rupert Murdoch went and bought MySpace for something like 400 million, and he couldn't make it work. If we had spent 400 million on something, that would have been the end of the Guardian. Yes. He at one point created a digital iPad newspaper, and it closed it after a year because he couldn't make it work. What the Scott Trust had was through the ownership of a number of other companies, mainly, it has to be said, a second-hand car magazine called Auto Trader, mm. which had successfully made the transition to digital. That threw off enough cash that we could afford to lose a certain amount of cash uh, every year. And that gave us the comfort that we could experiment in the same way that Murdoch and the Barclay Brothers and the Rothermeers yes. of this world could. Yes. It wasn't limitless, but it was enough to get us through. Yeah. So talking about the Barclay Brothers, I want to ask a bit about the balance of, if you like, reportage and advocacy. 
there's a widespread sense that the two are commonly elided today and not simply through the kind of relationship that as you write about in your book, Peter O'Bourne accused the Telegraph of having with HSBC Bank, but more generally in newspapers or media outlets pursuing political causes. Now, I'm sceptical that the two have ever been separate, but I wonder, are they getting ever closer? Is news journalism getting ever more intricately wound up with political advocacy? Well, this is such a complex question on which no two journalists will agree, particularly if the journalists come from the UK and the US. I mean, in the US, you're taught with your mother's milk, as it were, that there's something called objectivity and that you, you as a reporter must never have any political opinions. Yeah. The editor of the Washington Post, Len Downey, who was my contemporary, wouldn't even vote in elections. He didn't want a thought to pollute his brain <laughs> about which way he would vote. And I think that is a very noble tradition. The British tradition is completely opposite because the British press comes out of highly partisan newspapers in the 18th and 19th centuries. So you have a very partisan press and the defenders of that would say, well, actually that is healthier because no two papers will agree about the starting point for anything, and you get a sort of battle for ideas which grinds out the truth. They point to the, the Second Iraq War and say, well, you know, where was the New York Times? They just reported what they were told. Mm. There was no opposition to the war. So that's the context in which we work. But I increasingly, I think I'm coming around to the American model, because I think large swathes of the British press have forgotten about the supremacy of news, unblemished, unvarnished, unprejudiced news. And they're more interested in using their front pages to tell you what to think. And why does that matter? Well, I think it matters, A, because it actually distorts the news. If you come to the news with a sort of preconception about uh, the way the world should be, I think that is a distorting lens. But secondly, there's a more existential thing, which is about, well, what is it that distinguishes us from the internet? Mm. And I think when it comes down to it, it's our ability to say very basic things. You know, this happened, this didn't happen, this is true, that isn't true. And we do that from establishing facts. We try and get enough trust in what we're doing and our methods that people will agree on those facts. Mm. And that's how societies then can work. If you can't agree on facts, then societies don't work. That's the most fundamental thing that we should be doing. And I'm afraid the the most salutary example of that was Brexit. And I wasn't in journalism. It was 2016 when the vote happened. But I was reading the newspapers and I was thinking, well, what I want from my newspapers is to say, look, this is the most consequential decision you as a voter will probably ever make. And so you need to be armed mm. with the arguments. Mm. And you should have the arguments on both sides because otherwise you're not going to be an informed voter. If you also want to tell me what you think, that's fine. But that's not primarily what I think a newspaper should do. And most newspapers did the opposite. They began by saying, well, we know what should happen. We know what you should do. We're not going to trouble you with both sides of the argument because actually right is so clearly in our camp. And it went to terrible lengths. You know, you had the proprietor of one newspaper signing a check to UKIP on the first day and having a picture and signing mm. a check. That should have taken the Daily Express completely out. And so I think that was very destructive to the idea of what the press should be. 
But let me play devil's advocate here slightly. I'm old enough to remember the front page of the Sun in the 1992 general election, which ran something <coughs> like picture of Neil Kinnock, mm. if this man wins tomorrow, was the last person to leave Britain mm. and turn out the lights. Mm. That's doing exactly the same thing as Brexit papers were 25 years yeah. later. Yeah. So has this not always been with us? I think it's just got worse. And, and the Sun at the time was a tremendously successful, influential newspaper, and lots of people imitated the Sun. Like him or loathe him, Kelvin McKenzie was a sort of raucously demotic, brilliant editor of The Sun. And he did these front pages that people still remember. They sometimes remember the bad ones too. You know, like the sort of Gotcha Belgrano front page or the, the Hillsborough front page or the um, Freddie Starr front page. You know. yes. um, people remember these front pages whether they were true or not. And that will the last person tell out the light. That's not the function of a newspaper. It's a good joke. But, you know. In the end, if the Sun wants to be remembered as a newspaper, as opposed to something like the National Enquirer, then it has to decide what it wants to be. So yes, there is that tradition there. I just don't think it's a very good tradition. Yeah. You dedicate a chapter to Edward Snowden and his leaked documents revealing the extent of national surveillance, for which you personally face many calls for resignation and lots of accusation of treachery and betrayal. And the whole chapter in the book is called Do You Love Your Country? You defend that vigorously. But I was wondering where you would draw the line. What are the ethical limits to journalism, aside from what we've just spoken about? And are there stories that you either regret running for those reasons, or that you didn't run because you think an ethical line was crossed? Well, let's be really fundamental about this. If you believe in a free press, I obviously do, then you need to have a press that is completely independent from all kinds of power. So you have these people who are called editors, and they have a tremendously responsible role. And if they get something wrong, the old phrase, publish and be damned, should apply. Mm. So publish it and be held accountable for it, including and up to going to prison. And I was willing to go to prison for publishing the Snowden recommendations. And at one point, the government came to see me and said, we don't think you should carry on publishing this. And I said, um, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> thank you for your views. <laughs> I honestly don't think in this country it is for the government to tell a newspaper yeah. what it should be publishing and not. That would never happen in the US, would it? You make the point that it, there's a much more robust... Well. I mean, I, I, I know there was an occasion when George W. Bush had my opposite number at the New York Times in and said they were going to publish a piece about warrantless wiretapping after 9-11. So that, that was wiretapping U.S. citizens without any warrant. Yeah. And Bush had Bill Keller in and said, if you publish this, you'll have blood on your hands. And Bill didn't publish it for a year. And then the paper did publish it. So it's not that the American government doesn't have opinions and try and lean on newspapers, what they can't do is to injunct them. Mm. Now, in the 17th century, John Milton was writing about prior restraint. Uh, it wasn't the job of government to censor or to determine what could be published or what couldn't be published. And I felt that very strongly when I had this material from Edward Snowden. Mm. So, you know, in the end, the editor has to decide. That sounds like a, an arrogant thing. Maybe it is. But in the end, you decide what is in the public interest. The government could have prosecuted me. They decided not to. And they did come into our building and we ended up dismantling all our computers and smashing them up because they asked us to, which I agreed to because I thought 
the alternative is they will gag us, and I would rather keep publishing. So I just flew yeah. to New York and published out of New yes. York. Yeah. As I mentioned, you joined The Guardian in 79 on the same day as the reporter Nick Davies did, and you have a whole chapter in the book about his exposing of the phone hacking saga, which is a pretty depressing read, not least in how vigorously the relevant papers were protesting their innocence right up until the point they were actually found out. Is it any better now? I know, or I assume, that phone hacking itself is a thing of the past, but overall, the kind of the journalistic ethics that underlied or didn't underlie the phone hacking saga, are they in any better health? I can't say definitively because I didn't know about phone hacking when phone hacking was happening, but I, I think it's pretty unlikely that journalists are doing criminal things on the scale they were before. They would have to be very, very stupid because they had a very nasty wake-up call with that and the Leveson Inquiry and a number of journalists going to prison. I think that did clean up Fleet Street to a remarkable extent. I think attitudes to things like privacy have changed as well. So, But 20 years ago, it was part of the Fleet Street diet to expose shagging footballers and shagging this and shagging that. And, <laughs> uh, and some of these people sued and said, well, actually, I have a right to my own private life. And the Fleet Street papers bitterly contested that. But actually, it has been established that there is a right to privacy. And I think, actually, that's better, too. Yeah. Um, I think it shouldn't be part of a newspaper's function to pry into people's private lives, you know, except where there are exceptional public interest justifications. Quite a lot of things have got better. Some things aren't great. You know, there's the, the chapter on the Daily Telegraph was really a story about how the commercial uh, wing of the Daily Telegraph had taken over the editorial floor. Yeah. Well, that's devastating for trust in news if you've got people saying well can we suppress that paper because mm -hmm. we don't want to upset the advertisers or can we attack these people if decisions like that being made on a on a commercial basis that's very destroying of trust and what that chapter showed was a number of telegraph journalists who were very upset about this fact but didn't have the courage or the chutzpah of peter oborn to go public with it so i can completely understand that point of view but i suppose slightly depressingly i'm not given any sense that the Telegraph's readership declined because of this commercial interest taking over of journalism. And you'd kind of hope that it would do if readers get a sense that actually I'm not so much getting news here as kind of commercial packaging, I'll go somewhere else. But they don't. Well, two points. One is how would they know? I mean, that story was briefly covered, but not as it would have been covered if this had been an oil company or mm. a car company which was doing something really defective. There's a kind of dog doesn't bite dog, and we don't wash our dirty linen in public. Mm. So, you know, how would Telegraph readers know? But secondly, I think there's a wider need, which I think lots of people now believe that we've got to start teaching media literacy. Almost from sort of primary school onwards, people have got to be taught what to believe. And that should be as true of Fleet Street as it is of the Internet. You know, you, you ought to be questioning, well, why is this paper doing this? Well, and also in particular because you mention at one point in the book how the average length of a political soundbite in a broadcast news in the US had shrunk from 43 seconds in 1968 to 9 seconds in 1988, and elsewhere that the average visitor spent only 3 minutes and 4 seconds per session on a typical news site. And that's before we even get into the amount of time that people spent looking at individual tweets or Instagram posts. Mm. So media literacy becomes even more important, doesn't it, when attention spans are so yeah. very, very short. 
media now operates at such a huge scale that in the end it is only the individual decisions of all of us that are going to clean it up. So if you see something and retweet it without verifying it, you're part of the problem. There's a bigger issue here, I think, which is not a new debate. A hundred years ago in America, there were two political scientists who were hammering it out about the nature of society and how it works. In one corner, you had a journalist called Walter Lippmann, who had the sort of classic defense of why news matters. So news matters because citizens read, they become better informed. They are then able to make better informed choices about who to elect and we end up with a better society. Mm. John Dewey, another political scientist, came along and said, well, that's a very nice theory, but it can't work because basically people are too stupid and the newspapers are just not good enough. And they're never going to be well-informed enough. And what you need is an elite to make decisions for you. Mm. And to go back to where we started, the Cambridge Evening News, there was no doubt in my mind that we were working in a community that wanted to be informed about what was going on. Now, I think we're in a spiral of news avoidance. So newspapers have started abandoning that task. Mm. They're not in the committee rooms. They're not in the courts. They can't afford to be. So citizens are less well-informed. They're now called news deserts, where there is no local paper. Yeah. And so they don't know what's going on. They don't take an interest. And as you said, they browse whatever they come across on the internet. And that, to my mind, is a disaster for society. Really terrible. And it's a kind of sort of fracture between the people and the rulers. You know, it happened under Trump in America where people just said, well, they're all liars, they're all in it for themselves, and we have no faith in the system. Mm. I mean, you don't have to be terribly gloomy to see where that is going to end up. So how do we reestablish that idea of citizenship, of thinking, well, actually, I should take an interest in what I'm reading. I should take an interest in being sophisticated about what's true and what's not, because otherwise I can't play my role. And I think that does have to begin in school. And, you know, and you, whether you call it citizenship or media literacy, I mean, they're all sort of dreary sounding subjects, but they're kind of essential for future generations and for the health of the country. Yeah. So this leads to the heart of the issue. In a sense, it's as broad a question of what is journalism and the tensions that exist here between it being a private contract, between a kind of a news supplier and the consumer, or a public good. Mm. And your view is that it had to be critical as a public good. But there are very strong headwinds on that. What are the prospects of it maintaining this essential role of being a public good? And how can that be achieved? Well, I think it's not going to happen overnight. Again, to go back to Donald Trump's America, where you see there is no BBC in America, for instance, there is no universally available professional news. Yes. And so people rely on the internet, they rely on talk radio, they rely on highly partisan and polarised news stations, and you end up with a very ignorant, highly polarised society. So we don't want to be like that. And I think people are getting the message that without agreed sources of news, let's take COVID as an example of that. I mean, if you can't agree on whether what kind of threat COVID is, you can't have a public health response to it. If it's just, well, my opinion is this, or my facts are these versus your facts, the country becomes ungovernable. So I think the penny is beginning to drop that news is a public good, that people have a right to good information in the way that they have a right to clean water or a 
fire service or a police service. You know, societies will fall apart if you can't have that. As it happens in this country, we have the BBC, yeah, uh, which is one of the best news organisations in the world, one of the best funded. Mm. It's got an economic model that works. If you don't pay the licence for you, go to jail. Yes. Although there is a question about how long do you yeah. think that'll last? Yeah. Well, I mean, to my mind, politicians probably think, well, how can we keep this jewel of universally available news? Mm. Something like 77% of the public interact with the BBC in any week. Why would you dismantle that? And yet the commercial competitors of the BBC and some politicians. I just don't think they're thinking straight. So if you're lucky enough to have a, a clean water supply, why would you want to do something that's going to pollute it? Mm. We're better placed in this country, but we need people to wake up and see the value of it and, and not lose it. Mm. The book is called Breaking News, The Remaking of Journalism and Why It Matters Now. Alan Ruthbridger, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. I've really enjoyed talking. Next week, I'll be speaking to the journalist and author Henry Sanderson about his book on the race to go green. We've become quite divorced, especially in the West, from the supply chains that underpin these cheap consumer goods. And if you think of an iPhone or smartphone, there are loads of minerals in there and they all have quite complicated supply chains. And I think we've just taken for granted that someone somewhere else will dig up these minerals, someone somewhere else will process these minerals. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger and our team includes Lizzie Harvey and Daniel Turner. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people discover the podcast. <laughs>